my intention, you're welcome, for this evening was to do the book of Job. And I sat down to do the book of Job and realized I need to do a summary and introduction to the wisdom literature. So we have two handouts tonight, the wisdom literature and the book of Job. What are the chances that we get through both of them? Pretty slim. But we will try our best to at least get into the book of Job a little bit tonight. But we'll start with an, a summary of the poetry and the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We're doing this study because, well, I need to learn a lot about the Old Testament. The whole Bible is God's word to his people. The whole, we, we as a church value the whole council. The Old Testament, the New Testament, every book. And so it's good for us to increase our knowledge of Scripture. And I have personally found that the more I learn, even academically, about Scripture, the more I love it at a heart level. Uh, because we are exposed to more and more about who God is. And then uh, we, we grow even in our love for our God by studying what He has chosen to reveal to us. So we, turn, we come now to the poetry and wisdom literature section of the Old Testament. I will not put you through our review session again this week, uh, maybe next week. The, the poetry and wisdom books are in our, um, in our Bibles in canonical order. It's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The numbers in parentheses are the, uh, the chapter numbers, the number of chapters that there are in the book. You can see Psalms, of course, is uh, very long, the longest book in, in, the, um, in the Bible. So as I was doing some uh, research here, a lot of it came from um, Matt Bradley's uh, information and then also from Nancy Guthrie. Uh, you've seen me mention her, her works before. This one is a 10-week a, a Bible study uh, through the, the wisdom literature, and she does a, a brief introduction as well. I, I, again, I recommend these, uh, commend them to you. So, so far, through, as we've been going through the Old Testament, Genesis through um, Esther, it's been generally chronological order. If, if you want a historical ordering of events, so far they've been in order. But for the rest of the Old Testament, from here forward, there is not chronological order. We're entering into a genre of wisdom literature, and then we'll enter into the genre of prophecy. Uh, including some apocalyptic literature. And those are scattered generally uh, from the time of David through the, uh, the return uh, from exile. So that's, that's generally when most of these books, wisdom literature and prophecies were written. Of course, we will start off with an exception in the book of Job. It was not written during that time frame. Uh, the remaining sections, here's point two under general notes. The remaining major sections of the Old Testament poetry and wisdom and the prophets are all composed somewhere between the beginning of David's narrative in 1 Samuel and the post-exilic period after Judah returns from Babylon slash, slash Persia, uh, as recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. The primary form of writing in these books, as the name suggests, is poetry. Hebrew poetry is in some ways similar and in some ways, uh, in some important ways, different from English poetry. It helps to know something about Hebrew poetry in order to understand these books. Ecclesiastes is an exception. It's mostly prose. So prose is just written like a paragraph you would read as you were instructed to write in middle school when you did your five-paragraph essays. Um, or in the telling of history, that is prose. Uh, but then mu much of these books are, are poetry. 
Point four, the timelessness of these books is not merely a formal fact, but uh, coincides with an important message. Wisdom is timeless. Truth is timeless. God does not change. In this sense, we might say that the win of the poetry and wisdom books is not important. Um, and, and so what we're coming to are, um, how do I put it? Um, I, like, I like thinking in terms of principles, Timeless principles uh, that are applicable, widely applicable in, in many ranges. A lot of the Psalms, even though we have a good idea of the context of when they were written, that context is intentionally stripped from the, the verses of the poem, uh, of, the, of the Psalm, so that it can be widely applicable to many areas in life. And, and um, we'll find that Job itself is a widely applicable um, piece of literature as well, especially as we uh, consider everyone suffers. That's one of the main points in the book of Job. Everyone suffers. So, so how then, or, or the, um, how then do we do that well? And then Ecclesiastes, the question of what is human flourishing? What's the point of all this? We, that is a widely applicable um, principle of godly wisdom that is explored in that book. Uh, and then um, sex and the Song of Solomon uh, explored as a timeless um, truth, as a part of God's design uh, for, uh, for human um, flourishing. Uh, point five, wisdom literature should be read uh, most often as general truth and wisdom. Proverbs, for example, tells us both the wisdom of answering a fool according to his folly and the foolishness of answering a fool according to his folly. If you read through it, it'll, it'll tell you both. And some people might get mad and say, oh, then there's no absolute truth. Are you supposed to answer a fool according to his folly or not? Um, well, that's where wisdom comes in uh, because uh, wisdom is the application of these truths to life, to situations. And we're going to see one of the biggest problems with Job's miserable comforters is they didn't know how to apply truths to this situation. Uh, they missed the wisdom of how truth meets real life. Um, well, there's the example right there at the end of, of point five. Point six, Psalms is not exactly wisdom literature like the other books. It is poetry directed to God for praise and for petition, that is requests. It is meant to be sung and used in worship, and it was used in Old Testament worship, particularly at the temple. And though there is wisdom in the Psalter, it differs from the other books like a hymnal differs from a book of philosophy. Uh, that's an example given by Matt Bradley. Uh, these points, by the way, came straight from Matt Bradley. I don't want to take any credit for these. Any questions about the general notes on poetry and wisdom literature? Let's talk about how to apply poetry and wisdom literature. I think I uh, found a really helpful summary here from Nancy Guthrie on how these books specifically are applied to our lives. Each of the five books we'll study together deals with how to live in wisdom. They provide guidance for how to live in this world as one who belongs to God. Job shows how a wise person lives in a world in which the seemingly innocent suffer. Psalms provides the wise person with praise and prayers and laments for expressing his heart and mind to his God. I have experienced that over the last five weeks as we've been going through the Psalms. This is how we express our praise and our laments to our God. And it's a very helpful uh, book for, for me as a believer today to read the Psalms and to channel my heart through those same channels that the psalmists did in their praise. Uh, and they're largely laments so far, but then this morning a psalm of praise. Um, very encouraging to our, our souls to do the same. Proverbs offers practical daily advice for living as a wise person in matters of relationship and work in the real world. If any of you lack wisdom, he should read Proverbs. 
<laughs> I know that's not how the verse goes. You should, you should ask God, right? But if any of you wants to feel like a fool, read Proverbs. I have very slowly worked through Proverbs for years. I think I'm up to like chapter eight. It's been years. And I'm not doing it every day. It's, it's an occasional thing. And every time I'm convicted of how foolish I am. So I highly commend to you the book of Proverbs. And every time you read it, you'll be convicted even deeper and on another level because this is, this just exposes to you how much of a fool you are. But maybe that's just me. Ecclesiastes reveals that living wisely requires not just living under the sun, but under the rule of God and in the fear of God. And then Song of Solomon sings a song of wisdom in regard to sexual desire and delight. I love the fact that our, our Bible is not afraid to, to talk about the goodness of, of sex. Um, I, th- I think uh, that has become, culturally for us, a difficult topic uh, for good reason. And I am grateful that um, our scriptures do tell us what, what this is for and God's design for it. Um, I have no idea how I'm going to teach that book, but we'll see. R- reading Old Testament poetry and wisdom literature. Here are just a few practical points, things to be looking for as we go through these books. And I highly commend these points to you. One of the most significant aspects of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. It uses other artistic elements such as alliteration, assonance, and consonance as well. But these are not of primary importance for our interpretation. The parallelisms are of primary importance for our interpretation of wisdom literature. Hebrew poetry is beautiful in its own way, and this beauty is meant to illustrate the beauty of the truth contained in the poetry. Let's look at some examples here of the parallelisms. I think we have discussed these already in an earlier lesson, but I I, I think the review is very helpful and a good reminder. Uh, And I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 104, which was our sermon topic this morning. As I was putting this lesson together and writing uh, the sermon for this morning, I uh, was... Curious, I said, I wonder how many of these types of parallelisms I can identify. I didn't identify all of them, but I went ahead and just picked a few examples to include uh, to give us more examples in, uh, in these parallelisms. So a parallelism is when you have two lines that are, well, parallel, not just on the page, but parallel in concept, and they interpret one another. A, uh, the first example is a synonymous parallel, and what a synonymous parallel will do will say something, and then on the next parallel line, say it again in a different way that reinforces the point of that line. And so really those two lines, you read them together, they interpret one another and give a fuller meaning. An example here comes from Psalm 99.1. It says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. There are four phrases. The first two uh, phrases are parallel to the second two phrases. The Lord reigns is parallel to he and sits enthroned upon the cherubim. So if you come across another line later in the psalm that says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, you can understand what he's saying is he is the Lord reigns. It's reemphasizing his authority and his rule. And then the, um, the second phrase in each line, let the peoples tremble is parallel with let the earth quake which is again to show the proper response to the almighty power of God is to quake and is to tremble, uh, especially as sinful people. Psalm 104, I found some examples of some synonymous parallelisms. Uh, The end of verse 1 into verse 2, 
It says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Uses the analogy of clothing twice. Clothed in splendor and majesty. And then the parallel uh, element to splendor and majesty is light. Uh, Verse 3 is a parallelism. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the, uh, excuse me, there are three lines in verse 3. It's uh, the second and third lines that are very clearly uh, parallel. I do think there are definitely more complex parallelisms where all three of these lines really do serve together. But just for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to look at the second and third lines here. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. These two lines are parallel. They are saying a very similar thing two different ways. And so in the sermon this morning, I did not preach those as as two vastly different concepts. I used them as accents to explain the same concept because I, I believe that's what the psalmist is trying to do with this Hebrew element of parallelism. Another example in verse 4 as he talks about the angels. Another example in verse 7. Anybody find any other synonymous parallelisms beyond verse 7 in Psalm 104? Verse 11, that's exactly right. This one is an ABBA parallelism. First line goes AB, the second line goes BA. Uh, but it's saying the same thing, and it is reinforcing with a uh, synonymous uh, example. 14. 14. Yes, this one... So, personally, I always get confused, not confused. There, there's a... a there's a fine line between synonymous and synthetic. This one would be hard to identify between the two because it is synonymous in the fact that it is God is giving water to one of his living creatures. But there also may be an element of um, complicate, not complication, of, of compounding and increasing. Um, so, so that second line of, of how God gives uh, plants for man to cultivate, I think that might actually be a higher statement than God gives um, grass for the the, um, animals, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Um, I know that gets really nitpicky. Um, It is a type of synonymous for sure that has an element of increasing its point in the second line. There's a technical phrase for that, but I have forgotten all those technical phrases. Others. I think verse 17 is one. I'm just just glancing down here. Let's talk about antithetic parallelisms. These are rarer, but I think very powerful. Um, I am always hard-pressed to come up with an example in my mind. So uh, thankfully, uh, Matt Bradley came up with one for us. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So it is saying the same thing, but both with a positive statement and with a negative statement. And so these two technically are antithetical because the first line is speaking of somebody who's concealing his transgressions. The second line is speaking of somebody who confesses his transgressions. And so therefore they are antithetical and making the same point with uh, both a positive and negative element of that same point. I think they're very powerful because they show you both sides of the coin. I found one in Psalm 104, it's verses 28 and 29. 
And it's taking the whole verses as parallel to one another. Verse 28 says, when you give it to them, speaking of food, uh, when you give food to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Verse 29 is the opposite. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. The same point is God is the giver and sustainer of life, but it's said in both a positive and a negative sense there in verses 28 and 29. And then there's a synthetic one. Uh, This is, uh, here's an example from Job 21, verse 25. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. This is one of those compounding, increasing, kind of completing the thoughts. Um, I remember in some of my seminary classes, synthetic kind of became the catch-all category for one that didn't fit in the other two categories. That's fine. Um, But this one you can tell, it's like, it's not exactly parallel. It's really just kind of completing the thought. And so you call that a synthetic where the two um, lines together uh, synthesize the same point or synthesize one point by completing one another. And then from a theological perspective, reading Hebrew poetry, we must do it with the lens of Christ. We face questions in the wisdom literature that are answered only in Christ. For example, Psalm 24 asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who is the king of glory? We have to read that ultimately now that we have the full revelation of God in the Old and New Testaments, we have to read that as Christ. Christ is the one who ascends the hill of the Lord so that we might also go with him into the presence of God. He is the king of glory. And Proverbs asks, does not wisdom call? And the answer is that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ecclesiastes asks, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Well, in Christ, we live and move and have our being and our labors are not in vain. So we must then live in Christ in order to answer that question of what's the point of all our toil. And then the Song of Solomon asks, what is your beloved more than another beloved? And I think that's, that's such a profound question. It's like, what's special about your beloved? And the answer is that Christ is the only perfect beloved. He is our first love. He is the perfect groom. And so we say, come Lord Jesus and anticipate that wedding feast uh, in which we are united with our groom, the perfect beloved. Thoughts on, on this intro here? Okay. Let's turn our attention to the book of Job. We're doing great on time, so uh, we may have time to get through a lot of this. I'm not going to be bold and say we'll get through all of it, but let's see what we can do. The book of Job. I really enjoy opening our topics, our discussions on these books with asking the question, what do you know about Job and its, and its major points? What are some insights you've gathered through your studies over the years? And, and how does Job communicate the wisdom of God? I'll give you the floor. God's testing Job, and Job doesn't know why. Mm-hmm. God is testing Job, and Job does not know why. Those are two very important 
pieces of that whole story, or this whole story, yeah. What else? Satan seeks permission to test Job rather than has free reign. Mm-hmm. Can't say it any better. <laughs> I think one of the things about Job that's encouraging to me is that it is vital proof that even those that God loves and honors as being good are still going to experience pain, but he doesn't leave them there. Um, and even though Job doesn't really ever get answers, that tells me also that even though I might not have answers in this life, I can look forward to receiving them in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Job does not answer all your questions about suffering. It doesn't. But the wisdom of it is applicable, and I'm excited to, to get, dig into that. Other, other thoughts on the book of Job? Yeah. Though Job has a lot restored to him, that does not minimize the grief of the loss that he had, including his own children. Yeah, absolutely. Don't listen to your friend's advice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Not all the time. <laughs> and you often don't listen to your own advice. Yeah, that's right. Job 38, you know, it mm-hmm. always strikes me. Mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. says, where were you when mm-hmm. I established you? And then he goes on with the whole litany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Job was not perfect. Um, he, he did not curse God, uh, but he also, he said some wayward things that the Lord had to correct him on. Be slow to give answers to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and even his his comforters, miserable comforters, were slow. They t- it took them seven days. Yet even then, they they were, they lacked wisdom. Yeah, Luke. Yeah, insignificance, your measurement of value and, and purpose and your relationship to God is, is not measured by your worldly success. Yeah. God does not owe us something. Mm-hmm. We owe him. Mm. This God. whole, where were you when I, I mean, that's mm-hmm. God's way of saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't live in obligation. I think that's one of the most poignant for this this culture is God does not owe you anything. By God taking away all of those comforts of life, he did not wrong Job. He didn't owe him a thing. That's hard for us to swallow. I think, oh, well, God wronged me. As long as he makes it right, it's okay. God did not wrong Job in these things happening. Okay. Let's jump in. Job is likely the oldest written book in the Bible. Notice the word likely. Because under background issues, there's a a very clear statement. We don't know who wrote it or when. But it is possible that this was the oldest written book in the Bible. uh, Because even the Pentateuch was not penned until the life of Moses. And and this one at least tells a story that comes from uh, the, the patriarchal period. 
Uh, the events likely took place between Abraham and Moses in the life of a Gentile man, meaning this was probably not a Jewish man based on some of the con- contextual clues. Um, but this is a Gentile man who knew of the covenant faithfulness of Abraham's God and knew Yahweh. Yes? <laughs> I would assume so, but I have not read on that, so I will have to get back to you on that. Anybody have insight on that one? I know this topic is of... Uh, great interest to you. So I will see what I can do to find an answer to that one. <clears throat> I find this interesting. Sorry. For sure. I no problem. very interesting that I never knew, I never realized that Job was a Gentile. Mm-hmm. It just didn't click with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the New Testament, as alarmed as they were that Jesus was including the Gentiles in his message back this far. I mean, you know, God can, can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can have the ancient Hebrews talking about the Gentile life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, this, the way this is put here by Nancy Guthrie says it is more likely he was a Gentile who embraced God's covenant promises similar to Caleb and Jethro and Rahab and Ruth and Naaman. So he's not the only one. There's, there's quite a few uh, in the Old Testament. They are, the, of course, the exceptions that prove the rule. Um, but they are uh, exceptions that pave the way uh, for, for Christ to speak with confidence, of course, about the inclusion of the Gentiles. Yes? The You're right. Uh, The content of the book of Job addresses some of the most foundational questions of life, like God's relationship to man, the source of evil, the question of suffering. The question of suffering is intentionally set in the context of what is happening in heaven. The book opens with a scene that our modern minds don't know what to do with. If you don't have your Bibles open, open them to, the, to Job chapter 1. This, even just by reading the, the titles, it is an incredibly, um, how do I put it? it is, it's a disjointed uh, way to view what happened to Job by our, according to our modern minds. And according to the natural human tendency to associate uh, doing good deeds with good rewards or doing bad things with consequences. So what happens is, uh, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. These are the, um, uh, angels coming before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So that also makes you think, all right, Satan's really not one of them, uh, but he's there. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So many things happening in this encounter. First of all, who was it who suggested the testing of Job? (laughs) It was God. The God that he trusted is the one who said, have you considered Job? And Satan's argument against Job reveals, I think, deep secrets of how he operates. He's so directly connected Job's success to his trust of God. And what that may do is show us why Satan then also tempted Jesus with success. Because he has been convinced that success, worldly success and the gathering of wealth is what makes value and gives value. And that's why he rebelled against Yahweh. And that is how he is going after um, God's people. And we have bought that lie in our, in our sinful nature that if we don't have some kind of impressive accumulation of excess, then we are worthless. And that is a lie from Satan. And I think it's something we need to be very mindful of. And so that it's already beginning this, uh, this wisdom, these wisdom principles is already beginning to flow out from this book. When you see, um, Satan is convinced that it, that Job has just been protected, that he's the, the, the favorite child. And, and if God takes away success, then Job doesn't have any real faith because Satan doesn't understand what it is to trust a God despite the pain. And he's, he, he never will. There's so much more we could get into in this scene. Sons of God and these councils before God and Satan's accountability to God. But uh, these are uh, important uh, things to note. Thoughts on this before we um, move on. The question of suffering is intentionally set in this context of what's happening in heaven. And it's not on earth. We just looked at that opening scene. Satan's attempt to destroy Job's trust and the God that he loved ended in God's purpose to develop Job's trust. God knew from that moment that he suggested Job that in the end, Job would trust God more. And it's not just because, in fact, it was before God returned all that worldly success. Job did not trust him because of that worldly success. And that is, again, one of those things where um, reading this is, you know, the Holy Spirit can just cut to the heart. And say, oh, wow, that's me. I am so quick to to judge my my worth and, and, and to judge God's pleasure with me based on how easy life is. And that is uh, inaccurate. And that is, to put it bluntly, a satanic thought. And he wants us all to believe that. Okay. Let's look at the outline of this book. So we, we kind of looked at this introduction here. So this is the prose narrative, chapters one and two, and, and Satan does come back a second time. And uh, after, Job, after Satan just wreaks havoc on Job's life, and then God says, all right, well, actually, you can go back, and, and now you can actually hurt Job. Just don't kill him. 
And so kind of up in the, the, the torture here. So that's the prologue, Job 1 and 2. Sets the stage, uh, Job's uh, introduction as he, he laments his birth. This is the first, his first speech in Job 3. And then this is where the, this, that's where the poetry begins. And you can even see it on the formatting on your pages. And then this poetry continues for page upon page upon page all the way to chapter 42, I believe. Yeah, all the way to 42, verse 6. And there are a couple transition exceptions, but that's the poetry that, that takes over. And uh, there are dialogues between Job and his friends. He has three friends who come and sit with him and, and uh, seek to comfort him. And for days, they just sit with him in the ashes and they say nothing. But then there's a cycle of conversations. Eliphaz speaks first, and then Job responds, and then Bildad speaks, and then Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and Job responds. And there's that second cycle, and then that third cycle. And there are um, different scholarly opinions as to that, that final Zophar speech in the third cycle as to whether or not it is actually Zophar. It's not Zophar, it's Job, and therefore Job would have had a long speech from 26 through 31. Uh, it, it completes the third cycle if it is indeed Zophar. Zophar is not introduced there, uh, but some read it as an assumption that it is Zophar because of the prior cycles, uh, and others say um, it, it, it's Job. Uh, and, and the argument for, for saying that it is Job is, is that, uh, first of all, the narrator is not introduced, uh, and also... What it does is it shows that these cycles of communication end up breaking down and they don't complete themselves, which anticipates somebody else speaking. So Elihu comes in and then even Elihu's speech does not bring closure. And so there, we need another speech and then God speaks. And that's where the closure comes. And then Elihu comes. Elihu, you'll notice, is not one of the comforters. He, or he, he is, but he's not mentioned. He's not a part of the cycles. He's not one of the miserable comforters. He, he, in some senses, he is, and there's, there's disagreement as to whether he's a good speaker or a bad speaker. No, but he comes and speaks for five chapters and sets the stage for Yahweh to speak from the whirlwind in a very famous speech that many of us know. And then there's the epilogue that closes out the book. Thoughts on this before we, we dive in, just opening it up for, make sure that there's no misunderstanding. Okay. The message and the theology. Uh, that it says right there, uh, it's from Miles Van Pelt. It is not. Uh, it's from, the three big topics are from Matt Bradley. Okay, first of all, the justice of God. There are big questions in this book. How could God be just if Job knows that he's done nothing to deserve his suffering? And also then the narrator tells you Job is not at fault. Specifically, his sin is not what brought this suffering. And so uh, if, how could God be just if, if Job receives all this suffering and he is not uh, guilty of it? And the answer, uh, I, don't, I don't want to rush into an answer, but it was cleaner to go ahead and just put the answers with the questions. Uh, so even when we don't understand our circumstances, God is right and just, and we trust him. Uh, and so the justice of God is not something we can comprehend. Also, God does not promise Christians that their lives will be easy. Not, never once. In fact, he promises the opposite. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, but somehow it, it always rubs us uh, the wrong way. And, 
and and I don't say that as if I don't understand. I these 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 are questions that I too have personally wrestled with. How can God allow so much suffering for one who is so faithful? Um, I mean, there was a season in my life where I was so frustrated with God. This was years ago. I I wouldn't open my Bible for for three months. For three months, I wouldn't look at it, and then uh, after that, I would I finally opened it up. And but Job was the first book I ran to. Uh, so imagine how those that speech from God hit a soul like mine, uh, even a grieving soul like mine. That's uh, that's powerful. The retributive principle. Let's talk about retribution. Um, I'm trying to remember the. There are, there are other phrases for this principle, but we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Job's friends they detail how God punish punishes really the wicked and and rewards the righteous. They assume that Job has acted wickedly and therefore has received this punishment. So we ask ourselves as we go through this, is the retributive principle true? Why do the good suffer and why do the wicked prosper? Is Job receiving um, judgment for sin? And he doubles down on his innocence throughout the book. And the narrator tells us he's innocent. And so we do have to ask that question, but why why is... uh, a good, faithful person like Job suffering so much, and why are there so many wicked who are prospering? These are tough questions, and, and there are a few ways that we can address, address this. And, and this being a core question of uh, the book, we can't actually, and, and we don't find, can't expect, and we don't find a direct answer to this. Okay, great. I already included this as a quote under here for an answer. First of all, suffering isn't always a direct result of personal sin. We operate with the assumption that my good behavior and my spiritual intentions plus God's love and power equal a life in which things go well for me. We expect that if we're, if we, if we're pretty faithful at church, if we're pretty devoted, if we tithe pretty well, if we're present and we come early and help set up and stay a little late to help tear down, then we're not going to have the mega tragedies in our life. And that's just not true. I wish I could promise you that, but that would be lying. Uh, and, and so that, that assumption is false, and that assumption is unhelpful, and that assumption is also how Satan began uh, in this book. And I think that's still how he thinks. Or at least that's what he tries to persuade us. And then uh, Nancy Guthrie also says, perhaps the book of Job is in the Bible, not to answer all our questions about suffering, but to reframe our questions with its profound wisdom. So the question is no longer, oh, God, why would you let me suffer? The question is, God, who are you in my suffering? And, and there's more to that when we get to the, uh, the whirlwind. We will look here at the authority, and then we will uh, close for this evening and, and pick back up with this next week. Uh, the third topic, a big topic in the book, is the authority. Authority to answer. Because... Job has three friends, four friends, who answer. Job claims to be wise. His friends claim to be, I don't know why I put side there, wise. Elihu claims to be the wisest one. But in the end, God's word silences the pride of man. And then God is the one who has the authority to answer. And so what does this teach us about the relationship between wisdom and truth and the source of, and the source of truth and wisdom? It's not found in us. It's found in God. It's found in his word, and his word is the final source of wisdom and of truth. And so in our own questions and sufferings and wonderings and, and um, 
and grief like what Job endures, endured, we seek God's word and we seek for his answer and we don't try to create answers on our own. I look forward to talking about Elihu in particular because it seems like he gives good answers, uh, but at the same time he doesn't necessarily, um, he definitely does not get to the conclusion or to the question or to the answer of the question. So we'll pick up there. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the specific, uh, what the what the friends were about, what they were really trying to say to Job before we get into God's whirlwind speech next week. So let's pray now, and then we'll sing one more song. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is life. We pray that we would be encouraged as we look at this to, uh, to seek you, to, to know that you, you've cared enough for us to reveal wisdom to us. Would we be people who seek that wisdom, who care about the, the development of Christian character, appreciate the time that it takes, and would we be willing participants in dying to self and living to Christ, including living in godly wisdom? Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you treated Job. Thank you for how you treat us. Thank you for how you answered Job. And thank you for your answers that we can find in your word, even as we too face moments in life that we don't have good answers for. Uh, We give you all the glory and we uh, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.